0: So the uh, title is correct, Uh, the scripture is not. We're going to be in Luke chapter 23, verses 1 through 25, and we'll have that up on the text on the screen in just a moment, but Luke chapter 23, verses 1 through 25, you can find the passage on page 883 in the Pew Bible, be reading from the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. Then the whole company of them arose and brought Jesus before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate, and Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they had asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. So, as we continue in the traditional, um, what is traditionally referred to as the passion narrative, uh, detailing out Jesus' trial and eventual exe- execution, an objection is raised, uh, uh, arguing that the Gospels are anti Semitic. Uh, that is, that the Gospels so negatively portray the Jewish people and their leaders, that this has resulted in later people, particularly Christians or the church, uh, developing anti-Jewish sentiment and even taking actions against the Jewish people because of what is uh, portrayed about them in the Gospels. Now, there is some merit to this objection, not uh, not in the Gospels themselves, that they are anti-Jewish. But we must admit that there have been plenty of moments in Christian history where the church or Christians did in fact mistreat Jewish people and they cited how the Jews had treated Jesus as a grounds for what they did and how they treated them. And uh, this is not a new issue or a new objection. Uh, we recognize that the church is flawed and has erred in grievous ways throughout uh her existence. Now, because there if, if this was the only issue the church ever had, well then the church would have done it would, would have been doing real good. Okay. But the church has had far more problems than that. And so we recognize that the church has been flawed throughout its history. Um but but well, um but that particular case of mistreating Jewish people based on the gospels uh, would be a misunderstanding, twisting, and mis- misapplication of the Scriptures. It, it, it And so it highlights, on the one hand, that, that, uh, or for one thing, that the crucial necessity of careful study and exegesis of the text of the New Testament. Um, but I would submit to you this morning that you don't exactly need a Ph.D. in New Testament studies to see that it's not merely the Jews who act reprehensibly in this, in this text. Everyone in this story is wrong. Everyone is self-seeking, murderous, cruel, and violent. It's the Jewish leaders. It's the Gentiles. It's everybody. It's really basically the opening chapters of, Roman, uh, of, Romans, of the book of Romans. Right, uh, that, that we will see in this text and then also in the coming cru- uh, brutal crucifixion that is about to happen to Jesus uh, that, that of what Paul uh, you know, said in Romans when he started citing uh, the Old Testament when he said, none is righteous no, not one no one understands, no one seeks after God all have turned aside, together they have become worthless no one does good, not even one And we see that here, in both the injustice of Jesus' trial and the verdict that reveals, this, this truth is, is, is affirmed. And so we're going to consider each of those this morning. The injustice of Jesus' trial and the verdict that reveals. And, and, and so lot of, most of the sermon going through, just so you know, is going to be largely negative. okay? Because there's a lot of bad stuff going on here in this passage. But there is what I would think of it, what I would consider a hidden uh, or a surprising, uh, just burst of light at the very end. And so, and so you'll see that when we come to it. But first, let's consider the injustice of Jesus' trial, which is marked in verses 1 through 12, first of all by the flexible allegations that are uh, applied to Jesus in verses one through five. Now it was common for uh, for rulers to show up during Passover season. You know that was when the 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 Jerusalem population would swell, and and they really liked it when, um, you know, it's they really liked it when the rulers would show up to kind of just give a little nod of respect towards your community and and their religious faith. And so the Jews really liked that. And so uh, that's why uh, Pilate and Herod are in Jerusalem at this time. They're just kind of there. To essentially kind of give give the Jewish people a nod and and to give them you know thumbs up and help kind of continue the, the rule uh, Roman rule. And so the Jewish leaders call the Sanhedrin um, uh, call the Sanhedrin. They bring uh, Jesus before Pilate, who is the Roman regional ruler. He's over Herod, and 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 they accuse Jesus of three things. First, they accuse him of misleading the nation. Second, they, they accuse him of forbidding paying taxes to Caesar. And third, they claim that Jesus was saying uh, to be the Messiah King. Uh, and so the first allegation is very vague, misleading the nation. What does that mean? Okay. It, and so, and that, would have not, that also would not have interested Pilate. He would have been like, I don't, I don't care. All right, just go, go, go handle your own business. Uh, the second... Uh, would certainly concern Pilate uh, because, um, you know, not paying taxes to Caesar, getting people to not pay taxes to Caesar uh, was viewed as a traitorous kind of seditious uh, type of act. And so, but of course, it was also a lie. Uh, uh, Jesus literally said, pay, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And he did that specifically with reference to the coins, that you would pay for Caesar's tax. So Jesus literally said, pay the taxes. Pay Caesar what belongs to Caesar. So this is a straight-up lie. The third allegation that Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah King has truth to it. Jesus did indeed affirm that he was the Messiah and thus the king that's promised of in the scriptures, but he is not claiming to be the political revolutionary that, people, that the people tended to associate with the Messiah and what he was uh, the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders were trying to paint him to be. And this reveals the Jewish leader's strategy. They want to paint Jesus as a violent revolutionary in the hopes that the Romans would put Jesus to death because if there's one thing that the Romans don't like, it is uh, violent revolutionaries. They don't like that and they like to put those guys to death. Now an irony here is that, that the Jewish leaders presumably would have loved nothing more than a violent revolutionary, but they just don't believe Jesus is the violent revolutionary they're looking for. And so we have here allegations that are vague, false, and misrepresenting the truth, but they are flexible enough to get Jesus before Pilate to the point where it cannot be dismissed out of hand and Pilate finds it worth his time to investigate. The question that he puts to Jesus, are you the king of the Jews, is certainly not the only question that, that Pilate asked him. Uh, but, but he does ask Jesus the question directly, and Jesus' answer conveys uh, to uh, Pilate the answer in such a way uh, as to let Pilate know that he is not an immediate political threat to him, which, as we shall see by the end of the passage, is the thing that Pilate actually cares about? I mean, it's uh, he doesn't care if Jesus thinks you know he's uh, he uh, 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 that that he's you know uh, sent from God to you know do whatever this thing and the other as long as it's not threatening Pilate's rule he doesn't care, right? So uh, now, uh, verse in verse three though we need to note here in Luke's gospel, uh, verse three is the only is the only record of of jesus's verbal defense is the only this is the only words that luke records jesus saying in defense of himself for his whole trial and and uh, in the english it's four words in greek it's just two (laughs) it's you said it that's all jesus says between pilate and herod that's what luke records and he wants us to see that And so first we see these flexible allegations that are applied to Jesus. And then we see justice being used for personal entertainment in verses 6 through 11. So it seems like Pilate might throw the case out, but then, the, then Jesus' accusers uh, inform Pilate that this man is from Galilee. Now that likely caught Pilate's attention because about 25 years earlier or so, about 6 AD, a Galilean had led a tax revolt, uh, and at the time and caused the, the local Roman government a, a big headache because they had to go put it down. Uh, and, and also but being a Galilean puts Jesus into the jurisdiction of Herod uh, and uh, which uh, w- with whom Pilate had been uh, on bad terms with for a while. Uh, Herod had kind of messed with some stuff that was in Pilate's affairs and Pilate did not appreciate that and, uh, um, and, and Pilate uh, had also at one time raided the temple treasury to pay for an aqueduct that he, was, that he was building, and Herod did not appreciate that, and so they didn't like each other, they didn't get along. So, uh, as, so as an act of respect, uh, he, um, he sends Jesus over to Herod to kind of say, hey, I'm respecting your jurisdiction, it's kind of a little peace offering for him. Herod, for his part, of course, enjoys the compliment uh, of Pilate's respect, and, was, uh, and he finally gets to see this Jesus that he had heard so much about. You know, he had, some, he had with some regret executed John the Baptist, uh, and he had thought that Jesus was maybe John the Baptist reincarnate or raised from the dead. Uh, it, but it doesn't seem as though Herod is really looking for a great revelation from God so much as he is looking for some wonderful and wondrous entertainment. Jesus lets Herod know by his silence that he is not there to dazzle the ruler of Judea. Matthew Henry noted that Jesus, who did not deny the poorest and the weakest a miracle, now denies the powerful, and the one who has power over his own life. It is not the status, power, or wealth that matters uh, when But what matters is what we seek from Jesus when we come to him. It doesn't matter how much we have or what status we have in society, but what are you after from Jesus? If we're after Jesus for a little bit of comfort comfort and a little bit of entertainment, we're going to be sorely disappointed. If we're just looking for comforts of the flesh, Jesus is not here for that. But if we seek salvation from him, Jesus gives us every blessing. As Paul says, in the heavenly places. Herod's not happy, of course, with this. Uh, Jesus is not; uh, he's not singing Herod's tune, and so uh, he turns to mocking Jesus with his soldiers. No doubt that will uh, curry some favor with the Jewish leaders, Uh, and and also Herod's going to basically saying, "Look, I'm going to get my entertainment one way or another. Uh, You know, if you won't dance, then I'll then I'll mock you and beat you, right." And so after he's had his fun, he sends Jesus back to Pilate. And the section closes really with uh, what we can call unjust and unexpected unity in verse 12. Pilate and Herod become friends through Jesus, but not in a good way. In the end, we see that Jesus was never going to get justice. And indeed, we see today there is a unity of people and institutions of various stripes who may not be able to agree on much, but the one thing they can agree on is that Jesus, the gospel, and the church have got to go, or at the very least, they need to be quieted, minimized, and sidelined, relegated to obscurity that they would not have an effect upon the world. There are those who are united not in denying Jesus, but simply in using Jesus and the church to accomplish their own ends. Think of prosperity gospel, folks, not only the past not only the pastors, but even their adherents. They want to use, the G, they want to use Jesus, they want to use the Bible and they want to use Jesus simply to accomplish a uh, momentary prosperity. The trial is effectively over this point, and this leads us to consider the verdict that reveals. And the verdict here reveals three things. Three things it reveals in verses 13 to 25. First, the verdict reveals absolutely and completely the innocence of Jesus. Three times in this passage that we read, uh, uh, Pilate declares that he finds nothing in Jesus that deserves death. He finds him, in fact, actually completely innocent of the charges that he that have been brought against him. He's not just a little bit guilty, he's innocent. And not only that, Jesus has been doubly exonerated because he sent him to Herod, and Herod didn't know what to do with him, so Herod sent him back. So obviously Herod couldn't, didn't condemn him. And so account of this, uh, Pilate plans to release Jesus, but because they're making such a stink, he says, I'm going to release him, but for your sake I'll, I'll, I'll have him flogged before he gets released, because Pilate's just a good guy. The point here that Luke is hammering home, though, And so many of these verses are are all about is to communicate the absolute, total innocence of Jesus. He has committed no sin, not a single action of his hands, a single word of his mouth, a single thought of his mind have erred, strayed, inadvertently, unknowingly from the will of his Heavenly Father. Not one. Not once. Every fiber of his being is wholly and completely perfect. Here is a man who is truly and purely and absolutely The innocence of Christ doesn't just matter because it highlights how awful his accusers are or how sinful men can be. All of that is true. But the innocence of Christ is a necessary component for our salvation. Christ's innocence enables him to be our mediator. His innocence establishes our righteousness as his record, his life, his righteousness is given to us in the gospel as the Holy Spirit clothes us in the righteousness of Christ by faith. And so the verdict reveals the innocence of Christ, but it also reveals the evil of men's hearts. First, we see the evil of men's hearts in in the accusers of Jesus who bring those vague, false, and flimsy allegations against Jesus but who, when Pilate tries to release Jesus, demand that Jesus be killed and instead have Barabbas released in his place. It is amazing to think about this because they want Jesus to be killed supposedly for being a political revolutionary, and in his place they want to release the man who is actually a violent political revolutionary who is guilty of murder. They're like, no, we want this guy to be killed who's a violent revolutionary and we want you to release to us a violent revolutionary. And so we, we see, uh, what, are we, what are we seeing here? Well, we're, we're seeing people demanding evil in place of the good, right? We're seeing truth being exchanged for a lie. We're seeing the glory of God in Jesus Christ, be exchanged for a created, fallen, and wicked thing. And we see that there are those who are willing to give it to them, those who are willing to facilitate the deal, men like Pilate. We see the weakness and cowardice of men in Pilate, who knows and has declared the innocence of Jesus, but gives in the, into the mob because it is politically expedient to do so. For him, it is simple math, the life of one man, to maintain peace under my rule. Give the people what they want. As, they, as, people, as the saying goes, there the people go, and I must follow them, for I am their leader. But if we pause and reflect on this, it all begins to make sense. Because we begin to see the fact that it's not Jewish people doing bad things. It's not Roman people doing bad things. When you see what's going on here, what you end up seeing is you see our world. You see our society. You see the darkness of our own hearts that would exchange the truth of God for the pleasures of the flesh that would exchange the word of God for the comforting lies of men, that would exchange the abundant life of God for a life of soul-numbing subsistence. And Jesus threatens all that. And so Jesus has got to go. It doesn't matter that he's innocent. It doesn't matter if he is the Christ King. What matters is that he threatens the throne that I have set up in my own little puppet kingdom. He threatens the rule that I have worked so hard to establish over myself. And my flesh will not give its glory to another. All right. So, all of that is really hard and dark. But as I promised at the beginning, there is a wonderful burst of light a hidden gem of gospel grace in this whole scene here. Because as much as this verdict reveals the innocence of Jesus and the darkness of the hearts of men, it also reveals the wondrous love of God, the mercy and grace of God. Because in the exchange of Jesus for wicked Barabbas, is that not the very picture of the gospel itself? We fancy ourselves to be rulers of our own little kingdoms, but the scriptures reveal that we are actual, actually prisoners of sin and Satan. And the, but the goodness of God's love is like, is like Barabbas having his place of condemnation taken from him. Where Jesus comes and he takes Barabbas' place. Apparently Barabbas was headed to a cross. But Jesus took Barabbas' place. Took his punishment and his condemnation. One wonders if Barabbas became a believer. God is using the innocence of Christ and the wickedness of men to accomplish His redemptive purpose to bring many so- sons to glory through the suffering of His beloved Son. What a tremendous testimony to the sovereignty of our wondrous God. What a tremendous comfort that if He will use the suffering of Jesus, His beloved Son, in this way, can God not use the suffering in my life, as well, for his glory. He most certainly can. He most certainly can, and he is. And so the trial and condemnation of Jesus is an infuriating read. I, told, I said before, when I was a new believer and I was reading the scriptures, this was my, one of my least favorite parts of the Gospels because just you don't want to see what happens to Jesus. It's maddening to read. It, it, it grieves our hearts to see the Lord treated like this. But at the same time, we realize that we, see, that we see the work of the grace of God in our hearts. Why? Because we love Jesus. And we don't want to see him treated that way. That's a sign of God's goodness at work in us, his mercy at work in us. And we see also that there's not any particular group that is to blame for Jesus' death except the sinfulness of men's hearts, who desire to do do away with Jesus because he disturbs our sinful ways and plans. But we are stirred to praise because our God takes the evil of men and transforms it and uses it to bring forth the very gospel of grace that saves us. And so the Bishop J.C. Ryle wrote, and we'll close with this, if we are true Christians... Let us daily lean our souls on the comfortable thought that Christ has really been our substitute and has been punished in our stead. Let us freely confess that like Barabbas, we deserve death, judgment, and hell. But let us cling firmly to the glorious truth that a sinless Savior has suffered in our stead and that believing in him, the guilty may go free. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in Jesus Christ, the guilty, we, us, go free. And not because of our our good works, not because of our promises to be better people, not because we are good people deep down inside, but because our Savior is good. He He is good on our behalf. He's a Savior on our behalf. He suffers on our behalf. He takes our punishment on our behalf. He takes our place that the guilty may go free. And if we are in Christ, then we are free indeed. And so, Father, we pray that we would entrust ourselves to Christ and to his mercy and his love with joy. We pray, Lord, that we would take comfort in the gospel and that it would, it would impress upon our hearts the cost of the gospel. That it is not cheap grace, even though it is free grace that comes to us. It is grace purchased by the blood of your own son, by the suffering and injustice endured by your own son, who was condemned though he was innocent. was that we who, are, who were once condemned and guilty may be declared innocent, declared that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus on account of his innocence. Father, may we rejoice in that truth, may we rejoice in that gospel, and may we walk in that joy and light. And we pray this in Jesus' wonderful name, amen.